This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. I'd like to just welcome formally uh, Colin Gibson, our old friend, and uh, for me, a Dharma brother <laughs> in our lineage. And uh, Colin began his practice here. When, when was that? 2000. 2000. Not here, at the, at the old place. At the old place, yeah. yes, yes. The, the precursor of Austin Zen Center. And uh, spent many years at, in California, Tassajara, and other practice places in our realm. And has been the head teacher, guiding teacher of San Antonio Zen Center since, I should know these things, but... Uh, <laughs> ten years. Ten years, yeah, ten years. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it really was an amazing realization for me when I started thinking about coming down here from North Carolina that there were not one, not two, but three Zen Centers within driving distance of each other in this huge state of Texas in kind of a place that, uh, you know, surprised me to have so much... Suzuki Roshi Dharma floating around. So um, we, we trade Dharma talks. And uh, Heather Martin, who was just here a couple of weeks ago, also has a connection with all of this, this big mm-hmm. rotating Suzuki Roshi Dharma wheel. <laughs> and uh, it's really a pleasure to have you back. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everyone on Zoom. It's a brave new world, having Zoom in the Zendo. Yes. And um, if in back you can't hear me, I think my voice tends to get a little quieter as the talk progresses. If, if I start to fade out for you, just give me the universal sign. Or just holler, speak up! (laughs) Thank you, Joro Sensei, for inviting me to come give a talk. It's always a pleasure to return to Austin Zen Center. Um, Even though I have been in San Antonio for, for 10 years, I think there's always a part of my practice that's going to be rooted here. In, in Austin. Is there anyone who's new today? Any new folks? Ah. All right, we have a room full of seasoned practitioners. <laughs> little bunch of little Roshis. <laughs> so, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, recounted a story in which he visited a concentration camp. And he says he wept pretty much the entire time that he was there, which was also my experience of visiting a concentration camp. Uh, And he said that he vowed never to take part in anything like that. And uh, in reading that, uh, I felt really surprised. Here's a guy that's so good. And he says, I vow never to do this. You think, 
it's just natural, right? He's, he's, he's a Dalai Lama. He's not going to do anything like that. It's good to have these reminders. In, in Zen, we have, or in Buddhism, we have the practice of renunciation. And um, renunciation kind of takes on kind of an all-or-nothing quality to it. And we often associate it with grand gestures, like vowing never to participate in the evil of concentration camp. In our tradition, when you ordain as a priest, the night before the ceremony, uh, you cut off all your hair, and then you shave everything except for like a, uh, about a dime-sized spot on the crown of your back of your head called the shira. And as part of the ceremony of ordination in front of everybody, the the teacher says, this is the shira, I'm going to cut it off. Only a Buddha can cut it off, will you allow me to cut it off? And then the answer in almost all Zen ceremonies is, yes, I will. If you ever find yourself in a Zen ceremony and somebody asks you a question, say, yes, I will. And you just about got it covered. But that's the formal, that's, that's the formal renunciation, shaving one's head. It's a practice that gets expensive for some of us. Um, but really, uh, in our daily lives, our ordinary waking, moment-to-moment lives are filled with renunciation. We just don't think of it on those terms. If we're driving somewhere and we decide to go left instead of right, We've chosen one thing over another. We've turned aside from going right when we go left. Or turn away from going left when we go right. Or straight. It's just a very, very limited example. But anytime we make a choice, we're actually practicing a form of renunciation. We just don't think of it as such. And renunciation is core to the Buddhist teachings. It's core to the Buddhist teachings. It's core to our practice. Change is not possible without renunciation. Our lives cannot transform unless we embark upon the path willingly of renunciation. When we take on renunciation as a practice, when we willingly and wholeheartedly take it on, we're saying, I vow to leave behind old ways of being. I vow to give that up, even if it's quasi-comforting, 
I've only known just a couple of people who didn't come to practice as a result of suffering. I think two. Of all the practitioners I've known, there's only two that I can think of that didn't come to practice because of intense suffering in some way. And when we come to a place like Austin Zen Center, or San Antonio Zen Center, for the first time, when we take the courage to walk through the door for the first time, courage to sit down, we're saying, the way I've lived my life is not working. Something needs to change. This is a full-bodied admission that we need to we need a little help. You know? This is our this is our first step in asking for help. It's being willing to walk through the door. So in his very good book, Buddhist Practice on Western Ground, in his chapter called Making Non-Attachment Real, Aronson, Harvey Aronson, is, uh, in this instance he's talking about people who don't seem to find time to meditate. And he says, if we are honest, in most instances, the issue is not that we cannot find time to practice but that we do not wish to give up our habitual behavior. <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi used to say, you should sit for 10 minutes every day unless you don't have, unless you don't have the time. And then you should sit for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> this, this willingness to take on renunciation or an openness to the idea of taking on renunciation. Sometimes we're not ready yet. You know, like, you know, I'm, I'm really not ready. This feels like so much. You know, I really like my life. I think. But I'm open to it in the future. I'm open to it. I'm open to renunciation. May not be ready to go there yet but I'm open to it. And as long as we're open to it, the door's not closed. But when we embark upon renunciation, one of the things that's really helpful is to, or one thing that happens is we become, we become aware of, the, of uh, consequences. Con the consequences of whenever we continue to act out in our habitual way of being. Whenever we just keep going along, regardless of the suffering. I often inflict this on people. My, my uh, four years of Latin in, <laughs> at university. But uh, the root of the word, uh, well, so whenever you look up pronunciation, it says, you know, to turn away from, to renounce, to, to give up. But buried in the definitions is the etymology of, of renunciation, which means to report back. 
So it's the same root. It's like to announce something, right? So an announcer reports to an audience what's happened. Right? So we, when we renounce, we're reporting back. There's that awareness that we have. Oh, the way I've been conducting my life is not working. That's that report back. We have to get to the point where we're ready to listen to that report. And what that report does is gives us the opportunity to look and say, wait, is, has my way of being, has my way of interacting with the world, with people, has it been wholesome or unwholesome? Has it caused suffering for self or others? Or has it brought people together? It's really helpful to look at that. And what that requires is a willingness to take a hard look. There's this story uh, when not long after Suzuki Roshi, I believe, uh, returned to Rinso Inn as the abbot there, he was asked to give a memorial service. And apparently Suzuki Roshi didn't really hold with fancy things, like fancy robes, really elaborate robes. So he went, and, and he didn't, uh, didn't care for it, so he, he went and conducted this memorial service wearing an old robe. And the family of the person for whom the memorial service was held was terrifically angry at him for being so disrespectful for wearing an old shoddy robe to an important event. And this was a wake-up call to Suzuki Roshi. He's like, oh, I was, not, I was not really being authentic, showing up for the needs of the family for this very formal ceremony in an old robe. And he had to give up his preferences for, for in instances like these ceremonies and had to wear nice robes. But he likes you know, comfortable robes. We all like comfortable clothes. Um, but he had to give up, he had to give up that comfort. It was a big teaching moment for him. So he had to, to let go of his preference for the comfortable and to wear the formal stuff for the benefit of others. So we think of renunciation as like hmm, something that's being taken away from us. Right? There's a comedian that said, everything I've ever let go of has claw marks all over it. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of like our, our, our normal association with a relationship of renunciation. It's just claw marks all over everything. And if we look closely, though, I would say that renunciation is a preventative. It's that report back. Whenever we've done, you know, the, the old um, saying of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. This report back, says, wait a minute, I've 
been doing this same thing over and over and over again, and nothing's really changing. Nothing's really changing. So as a preventative, it's really, it's really helpful. It's very helpful. In summer of 2004, it was my, my first summer at Tassajara. It was my day off. And behind the stone office uh, where the guests check in, where the bookshop is, there's a, an area where the students hang out. I think we just called it behind the stone office. I don't think there was a proper term for it. It was a screened-in porch. But Tassar always got a copy of the San Francisco Chronicle and the New York Times. And I picked up the New York Times, and I saw a picture that was overwhelming in its painfulness. And that was um, an Iraqi prisoner kneeling on the ground, there was a leash around his neck, and at the end of, end of the leash was a soldier, smiling. And that was when the story broke about Abu Ghraib. And I, I saw that picture, and um, I think I went fetal for about a minute or so not just because of the degradation of a fellow human being or the karma that's being created in that moment, but I could have done that. That recognition that at a certain point in my life, I could have been the one holding the leash. And that's a painful thing to realize. And I'm very grateful that I had that moment of this, oh, yes, I'm never going to be a finished product. This path of practice is forever, for as long as I live, to be vigilant. So in my case, some of you may or may not know, I was in the Marine Corps for three years in the early 80s. So that's where I got that. I got some of that training in terms of dehumanizing. So renunciation as a preventative for this practitioner is never putting myself in a situation where I might do something like that. Recognizing the danger inherent in both self and others and saying, "Mm, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to put myself in a position where I could do something like that. Which means we, we need to be vigilant with our practice. We need to give up our, our, uh, our willingness to go back to sleep. And to not continue our process of awakening. So in, in the recovery tradition... This is actually called the fearless moral inventory. Right? Taking a good hard look at those parts of ourselves that we would really rather not. It's a little difficult. It's a little painful. And we need to do it. Whether or not we're in recovery. That, f- that fearless moral inventory 
is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to see what's there. It's to enlighten it, to shine a light on those dark spots. And to say, ah, oh, yes, there's this. I have to be careful. I have to be careful about the such and such situation. So I don't cause harm, or I don't uh, allow harm to be caused. So we don't we don't shy away from them. And that's where our our good Dharma friends come in. You know, when we say, oh gosh, I saw sitting zazen today and this really old part came up that took me completely by surprise and and then you see people going <laughs> yeah yeah you know sometimes it's a it's a surprise sometimes it's not so um this is part of my renunciation this is called a kotsu the teaching stick if you notice, it's a little different than Choro Sensei's. The shape is different, but that's because of the material that I had to work with. This is, um, I made this my first practice period at Tassajara. This is made from my rifle stock from the Marine Corps, from my M1 rifle. And, um, I wanted to keep it recognizable, so I didn't change the bottom. This is where the butt plate was, the side that rests against the shoulder. It's got a grid on it. Um, and I left that raw, so I would never ever forget what this was, what this had been. And this practice of renunciation is to transform this piece of wood that was a rifle stock in such a way that it can never go back to doing what it once did. It can, it can never go back to being a rifle stock. It can never be used as a symbol of power or violence. And when I look at it now, I don't see a rifle stock anymore. I just see the I see my vow, my vow not to do harm, to the very best of my ability, and it's never ending. A practice is never ending. This is why they call it practice. Hemingway once said about writing that they're practicing a craft that you can never master, and it's the same way with our Buddhist practice, with our meditation practice with our practice of saving all beings, of awakening, of not fooling ourselves, of not BSing ourselves, to come back over and over and over again and say, yes, I will. Thank you very much. So, if anyone has any questions or comments, uh, I'm all ears. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I uh, I was in the military, and 
there was there's so much pain there and i just appreciate just what you said um so thank you oh thank you Yes, Pat Sensei. Yes, that was very uh, moving, what you said about your rebel stop. But I was just thinking of something that Valerie Deere, when she was here, she quoted Norman Fisher, who said, renunciation is giving up what you didn't really need anyway. So I just wondered what you had to say about that. Yeah, yeah, and a uh, Tibetan teacher says, uh, Renunciation is giving up that which causes suffering, as well, too. So, um, yeah. What you didn't really want or what you didn't really need? Need, I think he said. Okay. okay. Yeah, that makes more that makes sense. Yeah. It takes a while to come around to that, you know, whether we need something or not. Like, oh, I didn't. Your hair. I need your hair. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, I like when you brought the etymology of uh, renunciating, and um, I think it was the first time for me to think of it in that way, mm -hmm. um, in the way of uh, like an active, kind of ongoing thing. And I was wondering about because I think my concept of it was abandoning or letting go of, uh, and so yeah, the difference between renunciating and abandoning. Mm -hmm. How does I, it opens up a question for me about Buddhist practice and letting go versus being you know, actively renunciating, being different, demanding different things. And, uh, I don't really have a form question, but I it made me think. I appreciate. It. So, what would the shape of that look like for you? You know, like between these two definitions. something about um, meditating and like this idea of thoughts as cloud that you let go or let pass and an awareness of that as a more active that is interesting but I, don't know. I don't know how to expand on that <laughs> well um, if I'm back before, for another Dharma talk, before I step down at San Antonio, I look forward to hearing what the results of your exploration look like. Hmm. Did you have a question? I, I think I did. What's your name? Uh, Matt. Matt. Thank, Thank you for your talk. You're welcome. Um, I really liked what you said about the rifle stock. That we had, at a certain point, could no longer go back to being a rifle stock. It was becoming something else. And I guess my question is um, if maybe you have some experience with that place where it's no longer a rifle stock, but it's really not something else either. It's sort of stuck in between uh, what, what it really can't be what it was anymore. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't work. And um, really can't let go into what it's becoming either. And the kind of turbulence that, that, that's that's in that place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, thank you for your talk. And just wondering if you might have some familiarity with what I'm saying. Yes, I think the um, 
if I understand your question correctly, I think um, that turbulence that you speak of is when we haven't fully made up our mind yet, when we haven't fully taken on that renunciation. You know, that we're... I think there's a point at which we kind of uh, want to have it both ways. Want to have it, we want to have our cake and eat it too. Keep keep the cake and eat it too. This is a better way of saying that, um, which causes a lot of pain. So uh, don't shy away from. It. Don't let it eat you up, but don't shy away from it either. Yes. Hello. Um, I, I was feeling, although this was about renunciation, and I was feeling so much compassion during this talk, which is really lovely. And um, I found it really interesting that when you were talking about the man, um, the soldier who was holding the prisoner, um, and you said, I vowed not to find myself in that position again. So I found it interesting that you said that rather than I won't do that. You talked about you wouldn't find yourself in the position. Um, and for me, that was kind of like a compassion gate, like this man is in a position, mm -hmm. you know, where he, this is what's, what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really lovely. Thank you. Um, it's, it's interesting. I gave this talk at San Antonio Zen Center last, last weekend, and someone made a similar reference. The soldier holding the leash was a woman. <laughs> you know, it's it's so you know, it's it's so interesting, right? Yeah. Because we just assume it's a guy. Yeah. But it was it was a young woman who was holding the leash. Yeah. And I and I was like, you know, and that I think just hit even harder in that moment. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, to that that point of the talk uh, was also uh, that really hit me as well. Because when you described it, that was where my mind went, was, uh, and then you immediately followed up and said that you wept because that could be you. And I think that that, that kind of like knowledge, self-knowledge, but knowledge of others as well, is like really important uh, now, you know, because uh, the culture that we live in is um, very quick to charm uh, feather, you know, that person. And, you know, when you said it, the first thing that came to mind is there's an entire culture of fear and uh, hatred and all of these things that are behind that scenario. But what made that? It wasn't just a person. That person is not fully culpable. It's the scenario, you know. That's right. It's the culture. That's right. Yes. Um, there's, a, there's a very good book by Philip Zimbardo, which whose name will ring a bell for some folks, called The Lucifer Effect. 
and he talks about, he, he holds in parallel the um, Stanford Prison Experiment, which is how, which is why his name is so familiar, and Abu Ghraib. And he was called to testify on behalf of some of the soldiers who were convicted of these abuses. So, um, and he talks a lot about this. Yes, we we have to be willing to look at the at these um, these parts of ourselves, so we don't end up in these positions. You know, so we have to know where our vulnerabilities are. You know, please. Let me share something about Zimardo. So he was responsible for those studies, which caused great suffering. Mm-hmm. And um, recently I saw, I've been seeing him at Compassion of Science conferences. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's really interesting that now he's looking at that through the compassion perspective yeah. that he's writing. Um, that there, there must have been some transformation. In him. It was uh, from. My memory of reading Lucifer Effect, yeah. uh, he got caught up in the experiment. He was so fascinated by what was happening. It took his girlfriend to say, what you're doing to these boys is wrong. And that kind of jarred him. And he said, oh, oh yeah, okay, let's... No, I think it only made what forty-eight hours or seventy-two hours. It didn't go; it was completely out of control in a very short period of time. Yeah. But his admission yeah. of that and his interest in being honest and reflecting on it is yes. certainly recent. Yes. And I think seeing you at these science of compassion conferences, I went, "Oh, okay." Yeah. He's 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 doing this through his whole person now. Yeah, some, sometimes insight takes a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why we can't ever assume that we'll be a finished product. We just... I have a question about something. I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and so this position, everyone will find oneself in this position again, reminds me of the occasion of sin concept. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and how we, how we, I mean, part of what you're talking about is being able to see the position and to see how we fall into the position and the, the whole habit chain and mm-hmm. how we automatically find our way down that path. And while I have like flashbacks, when we use the word occasion, <laughs> given my condition, it does seem like a it's, these are ideas. Um, there, there's some, some similarity in the idea that's underneath it, or the, the understanding, the wisdom that's understand, underneath it. Mm-hmm. So I, didn't, I don't know if you could speak more to this vow not to find yourself in this position. That, what that means elaborate more on what that means to you. That was what it meant to me. Sure, sure. Well, a classic example is this, right? So because of having grown up hunting and my conditioning in the Marine Corps, um, I can never own a gun. 
it's you know it, it's it's that straightforward for me it's like that's a very skillful preventative measure that I can take to prevent harm to self and others you know so that that's that's a that's the one that immediately comes to mind for this for this person this practitioner so identifying what's the high risky situations that's right that's right yeah just like in recovery you talk about um, you know knowing what your triggers are you know and it, there's a really great acronym you know the halt so if if, if you're if you're in recovery and you feel like using or taking a drink, I think it's halts now, but it's um, or, uh, check in and find out if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Mm-hmm. If you're hungry, get something to eat. If you're lonely, talk to your sponsor. Uh, if you're angry or you're lonely, talk to your sponsor. You know, and same thing with sad. You know, or you're tired, get some sleep. Uh, it works really good with depression too. I recommend that for folks with depression with uh, with, um, can, you, can you repeat that? I it's halt. Uh, uh, the hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Oh. Um, and I was just saying that's it's a acronym used in one of the good acronyms in, in recovery, and um, I recommend it for folks with depression, with uh, struggling with depression, because food, blood sugar is really important <laughs> for depression. You know, it's really important, an understated component. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Jacob. Um, hi, Jacob. Nice to meet you. I feel like during your, during your talk, something that came up for me was kind of the idea of indirect and direct harm. I feel like for me personally, it's, it's much simpler, I guess, to renunciate direct harm versus I feel like a lot of times just having awareness about this country, there's so much indirect harm that happens through our military, through our criminal justice system, through our destruction of the planet, yeah. <laughs> um, that it's, it's harder to renunciate that. That's, and that's something that's ongoing, that kind of, you know, you, you don't have that, that control um, in the sense of, you know, I'm not gonna buy a gun, for instance, or um, it's kind of like, it, how do I renunciate this system I'm a part of just by being an American citizen? That's right. So, I don't know if it's a question, but it's just something to, um, do you have any insight on, or how do you, how do you be with that? Yes, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Jacob. Um, actually, on the drive up, uh, a thought popped in my head, oh, this is, you know, we're actually talking about harm reduction. That, you know, renunciation is, is a form of harm reduction. Um, so, when it's systemic, that's uh, that is something that we have to be willing to open our eyes to and see it and to really let that pain in so we can see the effect on others you know like the the effects of uh, classism racism um, military aggression um, all of these things and see you know, how you know what is the most skillful way that I cannot participate in this and not play a part in this and aiding um, and helping my fellow human beings. And I think it's something that we have to keep alive 
and, and never assume that we have the answer to, you know. That's what I have right off the top of my head, but it's so hard. It's, it's, it's super hard. Yeah. Some folks de deliberately live below a certain wage level so they don't have to pay taxes, so the money doesn't go to the government. So the money doesn't go to the military, you know. And we have to be careful about about that, right? If if we're if we're struggling financially and struggling to keep a roof over our head, feed our kids, it's not going to be helpful to renounce money, you know. So there has to be a, the appropriate the appropriate tool uh, in that moment. And I vow to keep trying. Thank you. Did that, did that answer your question? Yeah, that was very helpful. And okay. it kind of reminds me of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's Engage Buddhism, which I really gravitate towards, turning that inner transformation, the social transformation. But often it just can be difficult because it's ongoing and it never really stops. Yes. And now we have access to all the suffering in the world. <laughs> you know, right. It's very new as human beings. So when we have that, you know, it's not something that a thousand years ago you had to engage with in a way that we can now. So yeah, that's the difficult part for me that it's, it doesn't stop necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, the internet doesn't help. <laughs> I think I think of a, a story about Suzuki Roshi where uh, a student was, uh, he had given a talk, Suzuki Roshi had given a talk, and it was time for the questions, and the student said, why are we sitting here when, you know, the Vietnam War is going on, we should be out protesting? And Suzuki Roshi said, you know, this is where the work starts. And the kid, and the kid kept pressing him. And finally, Suzuki Roshi had had enough, and he jumped up, and he had his little teaching stick, and he started whacking the kid, saying, dreamer, dreamer! Dreamer, and I was like, "Wow!" It's like you know, we got to do our own work. We—that's how we change things: is we do our own work. It's, it's very important to do that. You know, at least that's how I read that story. Anyway, <laughs> it's just like you know, this is how you change it. This is how you change it is by waking up to what's going on, waking up to what we're capable of, both negative and positive. And not ignoring the negative, but feeding the positive. You know, that is just over and over and over. Renunciation is a never-ending process. Yes, what's your name? Uh, John. John. Hi, John. Thanks for your talk. Um, I guess this is a confession of sorts, but the, mm. the leash story. I um, I do a lot of live-in pet care, so I'm walking dogs quite a bit, mm -hmm. and. Um, I, I, I love it, right? But when I'm, I, I forgot the acronym, but when I'm hungry or angry or... Lonely or tired? Lonely or tired or in any range of that, you know, difficult states. Sometimes, you know, when they don't behave exactly the way I want because I might be in a hurry, right? Um, there's, there's this impulse to, like, control domination, you know, you can feel that arise, and it's something that goes beyond just keeping everybody safe, keeping everybody from running out into the street, 
you know, keeping the walk enjoyable for other people walking their dogs. There's this extra, you know, and it, it kind of manifests in ridiculous things like expecting the dogs to understand a sentence. <laughs> like, why are, you do, why are you doing this again? It's absurd. They don't understand that, that string of syllables. Um, but yeah, I feel like this is kind of what being aware of these and where these intentions form, you know, even the most in the most ridiculous little everyday ways, um, not just with respect to other humans, but mm-hmm. you know, because they, it's when you let go of that, it's the opposite. It's more spacious, and you realize these beings are living in a totally different sensory world than my, you know, binocular vision looking towards my goal of of getting the walk done. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like you can feel those that intention towards domination or control mm-hmm. rise in a lot of less dramatic ways. Mm-hmm. So, so thank would, you for your talk. Well, you're welcome. What would you recommend for folks in the in a similar situation? For for uh, that domination that wants to arise? That... Well, I feel like letting go of it, the, the sensation is more of, of recognizing that this other being is, inhabits a totally different world than you. Mm-hmm. And that could be a human. It could be a dog, you know, that they have their own, that they have their own set of desires. And that, that impulse to control seems like an absurd unwillingness to recognize that. Um, so I think letting go of that, just just um, inhabiting the pleasure of recognizing that the, the other being on the end of that desire has a whole range of, of wants and goals and experiences that have nothing to do with what you want. Their, hier- their hierarchy of needs is a little different than yours in yeah. that moment. Yes. So recognition to know again. That's the <clears throat> etymology of that for anyone who. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hi. Um, yes, I wanted to um, bow deeply to your voicing. Um, what the military and control and uh, violence in general does um, to us as individuals. And your analogy and your action of carving the rifle stock really has is beautiful analogy and one I won't forget. And as you carve, as you take the knife to that wood and the sandpaper to that wood day after day and moment after moment. It is a continuing process to transform that wood in ourselves. And that kind, it's really a kindness to ourselves and a forgiveness to ourselves as well in doing so. Well, thank you so very much. Well, thank you. What's your name? Uh, Don Kaishin. Hi, Don. Thank you very much for, for that. I think that was uh, very well put. Yes, I wish I could have said it so well. Anybody in the foyer?
Hi, Sue. Hi. Thank you. Yes, thank you. What do we think? You ready for some caffeine and carbs? <laughs> okay, thank you all very much. And thank you uh, on Zoom for coming and attending.